0: G'day and welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO here at NextGen Agri. I've worked in livestock farming and breeding for over 25 years, and through this journey, I met some truly wonderful people. It's fantastic to have the opportunity to share their stories and their wisdom with you through this Head Shepherd Podcast. It's also fantastic to meet new people through the podcast, and I'm always humbled by the generosity of people that take the time to have a chat and share their stories. I also very much appreciate you, our loyal listeners, who continue to listen in and provide your feedback each week. It's very much appreciated. This podcast is supported by our good friends at Allflex and MSD Animal Health, who are guided by the one mission of the science of healthier animals. Now combined, these companies have one of the widest livestock product portfolios in Australasia with a comprehensive suite of animal health products through things like the Cooper's Range and the ID and monitoring solutions that Allflex are famous for. Their products are all backed up by their exceptional service, and we are really proud to continue to have their support in bringing this podcast to you each week. Okay, let's get this show on the road. Welcome back to Head Shepherd, we are still in a shearing shed, so there might be some underways in the background, but uh, awesome to have Bronwyn Clark on today, welcome Bron.
1: Thanks, thanks for having
0: me. Bron, um, we might start with, as we normally do, with a bit of a background of, or your background and and sort of how you ended up in genetics, uh, you've been working in genetics for a fair part of your career, and um, yeah, I guess just, just tell us how that how that all eventuated.
1: Thanks, Ferg. i um... I grew up in the highlands of PNG, so there were no sheep around me there, um, but moved to Moree a, as a kid and um, went to high school, local high school, and studied agriculture. And, uh, you know, I was the only girl in my in my ag class with the footy team. Um, but it uh, – I, I don't know what it was uh, about agriculture that really interests me. So when I finished school, I – got a scholarship to go to the University of New England and do ag teaching. I told my parents that that was too close to home and I wasn't going there. So I packed my bags and went to Sydney and studied wool and pastoral science. And, uh, you know, that's where my interest in, in sheep obviously has come from. And uh, my grandfather was a wool grower too, so he had farms around Cowra and Bathurst. and Mum and Dad had a couple of hundred sheep on a farm at home as well. But I think at uni I worked out that I could combine my interest in maths through genetics, with with my interest in sort of um, sheep science. Um, so when I finished at UNSW, my wool and pastoral science degree, I went back to UNE after saying I wouldn't go there um, to do my PhD, and and I did a PhD in quantitative genetics, which I you know and, and my PhD I simulated all my sheep on my computer. So I spent three and a half years solving mathematical equations and coding in Fortran. So it, it really was that combination of um, maths and um, and animal science. From there, my first job was at the Department of Ag at Katanning in Western Australia and um, working with Johan Grief in genetics. And, and I've worked in sheep merino genetics and, and that's where I've been ever since in, in that field. have always worked in Western Australia and and just have had different roles. A lot of my, my work's been in sort of um, extension and, and helping ram breeders and commercial wool growers with understanding how to to apply genetics, I guess, in their in their breeding programs and, and their sheep production systems.
0: Yeah, cool. I don't think I knew about that Papua New Guinea stint, and my wife grew up in Papua New Guinea <laughs> as well. So the uh, how long? What, what took you to Papua New Guinea? Obviously, your parents' job or some description.
1: Yeah, yeah. Dad was a teacher, and mum was a doctor, so we. Spent nine years there, so all of my primary
0: school was um, done in PNG. Great place to grow up. Yeah, no, that's yeah. I think that's what that's what I hear as well. Yeah, yeah, no, nah, awesome. Yeah, um, I don't know how many people know, but there was a thing called the Marino Validation Project back um, that you ran. I don't know, it's twenty years ago now, two decades, is it roughly? Um, and I don't know, it's that allowed us to have carcass data on merinos and sort of set us up to, and I guess that to set me up in my PhD to use that information to then go forward. Did you sort of, did you expect that to have, I guess, what was the product and what did it achieve and did you expect it to have the impact that it did?
1: Yeah, that was an interesting one. And it um, when, when I first started at the Department of Ag, which was 1997, if I get it right, we had a visiting scientist come over from South Africa and he was telling us about these sort of new sheep breeds that combine sort of wool and meat traits. And speaking to him we asked him what whether his income came you know what proportion came from wool and what came from meat and it was 70% meat 30% wool and we kind of said well you know it's exactly the opposite here and at the time it was it was you know you're only getting 30% of your income from from meat um fast forward a few years and the merino validation project was a project put forward by MLA that I coordinated nationally and that was run from 2001 to 2003, and what we were looking at is actually um, scanning merinos for carcass traits because we didn't have that information on merinos. But the the project, looking back at it, at the time, land land plan existed, there was a cross-flock genetic evaluation for merinos being done by different groups across Australia and New Zealand, and there wasn't really a national strategy um, in place. It was pre-sheep genetics, but it was just as, what was it called at the time, Merino Genetic Services was starting. Um, and so, and, and over time, Merino producers have been able to make gains with, you know, as you know, in, in um, reducing fibre diameter, increasing fleece weights, because those traits are so heritable. But when we started looking at making gains in in carcass traits, you can't see or feel that those traits. So it was a real opportunity for merino breeders to become involved in, in a national system to get carcass measurements done on their merinos and for us to have a look at you know, how heritable those traits were, can we make improvements within the industry, but at the same time I have a lot of people interested in, in being involved in a, a national um, a cross-flock anal- analysis system so over three years, we had 120 Merino flocks become involved in the project. In the first year, we aimed for 30, I think, and we got 50. Um, so there was a lot of interest. I think we added something like 100,000 records into the the national database at the time, just from the project. And on top of that, we added something like 115,000 um, historical records into the database. So it was a time where there was um, a lot of data going into this national system, and Building up the information that we needed to get those genetic parameters, the heritabilities and correlations with carcass traits and, and wool traits in merinos, so it was a real, it was it was an exciting time. And at, at the end of that project, it was actually when it was announced that AWI and MLA would, I think it was December two thousand and three, that they announced a joint investment in Merino Select. Um, so it, it was a pretty exciting time to to be um, involved with the merino with merino producers. What happened in the project was that there was funding available for merino producers to take um, fat and eye muscle scans at two ages and also to get worm egg counts if they could and scrotal circumferences as well. So it was kind of starting to get some of that repro data that that we would have liked to get into the merino system as well as the carcass data as well.
0: Yeah, cool. And I think, well, quite fortuitously, about two years after that, I sort of wandered over to Western Australia and, Started my PhD and was really interesting carcass traits, and was lucky that that a couple of the flocks that would have been in your project, like Blandry and Maranotech, and eventually uh, Murchpin would have all yeah, they all had useful data that I could then um, make selections on, and then start to investigate what that meant for other things. And yes, yeah, so I was pretty kind of at the time. I didn't realise how fresh it was. I don't think, and it's easy to look back now. I think these things have been around forever, but it's also interesting to think back. Twenty years ago, we didn't have this this tool, and I've literally just spent the day in the yards looking through carcass data, which pretty much all started back, back with that project. So it's, um, I guess going full circle, but yeah, it's really set us up to breed a completely different merino and breed a sheep that, yeah, is, that probably is starting to reflect some of those South African ratios of, of meat to wool. We're probably still more like 60 40 rather than 70 30, but, um, a lot of people, even if they're wool specialists these days is, are quite uh, heavily weighted towards meat, which is, which is interesting and, um, makes, makes for a pretty, uh, pretty productive and profitable sheep, for sure. Uh, Brian, I guess personally, you've raised a family, um, managed to keep a, a career moving forward. Um, have you had any particular strategies to, to sort keep those things moving along? Obviously, it's um, being a bringing a career woman, and I guess now it's probably a bit more, maybe a bit easier or a bit more accepted. But um, you've probably been through a time where it wasn't wasn't so. But yeah, any, I guess any any challenges you had, or any any strategies you had to keep that both things sticking out.
1: It's an interesting question. I'd love to say that it was easy, um, but a lot of the time, while it may not have been easy, it's been fun. Um, And uh, I think a lot of that, you you mentioned, you know, things going in a full circle. I think one of the most important things has been networks in the industry. When I started at the Ag Department in Catanning, Andrew Thompson was two doors down from (laughs) me, and, you know, now I work with him at Murdoch. And, And I think those networks within our industry they're a lot smaller than, than you think, and I think, you know, I love social media, particularly ag Twitter, for example, just for those networks and, and hearing from people that you may not have heard from for a while. But I think that our, our networks, um, and particularly over the course of my career, there's been a lot of times where having done my PhD in Armidale, in, sitting in Agbu um, and working with people who've gone on to work for MLA or AWI or whatever, and have been looking at, um, it's more about people. I think our industry, what I'm trying to say is about people and the networks that you have, and a lot of my work has revolved around the people that I work with. I think that it's always good to work with good people. Um, I'm pretty happy to say yes to do things very quickly if I really am interested in them. I work out the details later. Just just say yes, and uh, if there's something that you love that you really want to be involved in. And when you surround yourself by good people, it always makes you look better. So um, that's, that's always um, a, a good tip. Um, I, I, like I said, I'd like to say it's easy, but I, in the course of my career, the longest stint I've had off has been four years, and that was particularly tough. So between 2000 and, I'll get this wrong, 12 and 16, I had a little break. It's the longest break I've had from my work, and it was because I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I had a um, two years off kind of with fairly – fairly tough chemo and radiation treatment. Um, And then once those two years were over, my my husband was diagnosed with cancer and and he passed away within two years as well. So having to spend that time to kind of concentrate on my kids as well. I've got three, I'd like to say they're young kids, but they're a bit older now, Um, three kids that were young at the time. Um, And I think it really is important to, to take time when you need it. But part of taking that time, for me, is to work as well. My husband used to say that I was a better person when I was working. Um, I think my kids agree. <laughs> uh, so it's it's good to be able to. It's been good with my kids to be able to say, you know, you've got to pull your weight a little bit because this is the way it is. And and you know, for me to work and for you to um, study, that that's just the way it is. We're part of a family, and and this is the way we do it. I. You know, I love it now. So my children now are 16, 18 and 20, so I've got two of them at uni and, and I'm teaching at uni as well and I'm just learning all the time from them, um, listening to them and, and finding out what works and what doesn't and hopefully it's helping make me a, a better, you know, lecturer and tutor and all of those things at uni. So it's quite, it's absolute treat to be able to be at a uni while they're learning at a uni as well. So I don't know if I answered your
0: question Oh, no, I was, yep. No, that's, that's, uh, every, every answer is an individual one. And yeah, i mean, exceptionally tough four years for, for you and the family. And, uh, yeah, awesome to have you back in, back in the gig and back, back working at Murdoch. So yeah, as you mentioned, you've gone full circle. You're back working with Tomo and we haven't actually talked him into coming on Head Shepherd yet. I've asked him plenty of times, but he always ducks it. Um, but yeah, I guess just for those who don't know what you get up to there, you're involved in a range of things at Murdoch University, which is the uni that, I did my PhD over in WA, but um, yeah, really probably top end, well, one of the better research groups getting around really in sheep industry and certainly top in Australia and um, both across meat science and the sort of reproduction and other innovation that, that you deal with in your group. So it's a pretty cool group to work in. What, is, what sort of bits are you working on?
1: Um, I have to start by saying I really agree with you. It is a cool group to work with. And like I said, I like working with good people and I'm working with really good people. I, th- I think the people at Murdoch that I'm working with are fabulous. Um, and I, I think that our group has a really good link with working on farm as well, which is really important to me, is making sure that the research that we're doing is is relevant and has outcomes that are important to, to producers. Um, there's two research projects I'm involved in, but I'm also doing um, a little bit of teaching, which I really enjoy. I'm doing some teaching, supervising honours students and um, helping out where I can on that side of things. But in terms of... Um, research. I've got one research project with um, Carolyn Jacobson that we're working on looking at helping weaners thrive and survive. So we're looking at feeding strategies for um, weaners between weaning and their first joining. I'm looking at feeding differentially um, at, in different periods before their first joining to see if we can't have an impact on um, survival of weaners and also have an impact on their subsequent reproductive performance. That's an MLA-funded project, but the, the big project I'm involved in is an AWI-funded project called the um, Merino Lifetime Productivity or the MLP project. Uh, we, we have one site in Western Australia that's linked to four other sites across Australia, and we're looking at the lifetime productivity of merino ewes from a number of different ram sources. So we have across Australia 135 different rams, use ewe progeny from 135 different rams, something like 5,000 different, uh, 5,000 ewes and um, in Western Australia we've got progeny ewe progeny born in uh, 2016, 2017 and we're looking at their lifetime performance. So we're looking at their, their wool production, their reproduction, you know, worm egg counts, anything we can collect on those those animals and we, we're having them classed as well. So we're getting um, classing data as well as, um, you know, the measurement data.
0: Yeah, cool. And that's something I wanted to sort of wander into the, uh, at our first and unfortunately only head shepherd conference, which we have got grand plans for 2022 to run, to run more of them. In fact, we're aiming to run four conferences, uh, for the calendar year. And yeah, it was a great, it was a great conference. It was early in COVID and we, and it was, it was awesome. And you were one of our, one of our, our speakers and, um, spoke about that sort of classing within the MLP and, and how, um, I guess, We know, as we work in genetics, that what you see isn't what you get. And but it's been interesting too. In that project, is unique in the sense that the animals get to stay around, so you not just like normally you class them and they're gone and never really know. Whereas in that project, you they're classed and they hang around, so you get to see. A you get to see why they got put that way, and also whether whether that changes and whether that how that I guess relates to their later productivity. But I guess the intriguing thing that I've always liked or wanted to know more about is the. The impact of being born single and twin on your, on your classing outcome. Can you tell us a little bit about that and whether you've sort of learnt more since back then or whether it's sort of just confirmed?
1: Yeah, so what we found with the use at Pingley is that, like you say, we class them each year and they're classed, um, we, we're classing them two ways. We're doing a traditional what we call an ANSI class, which is just a top flock or cull, and we're also giving them a professional class, which is a five-grade um, class. And what we found in the first few years is that the use um, that were being classed both in both ways, both types of classing, twins were being significantly disadvantaged. So we were getting a high proportion of, you know, seventy five percent of the culls were twins, um, and that continued the first two sort of classings. We're starting to see it even out now. We're down to, you know, up to our third and fourth classings, but obviously what. The implication of that is is that we're just we're getting rid of the twins and there's nothing to say that they're not the the youth with the best genetics. They're merely being classed on their size. You know, it's usually a, a um, class based on their, their size that they're being culled for. Um, so it is really exciting to keep them in the flock and see what happens over time. We are starting to see, you know, as they've got older, that they've, they've evened up a little bit. So we're not seeing the same proportion of twins in the, in the cull category. It is slightly higher still, but not as much as the 75% that we saw early on. But we do, we, we are starting to see a few other things. We've got two ewes that were born in 2016 who've had nine lambs over four lambing opportunities. Um, and one of those has been culled multiple times. (laughs) Um, whereas they're, you know, our, our highest producers in terms of the number of lambs they're producing. Um, and those those culls were, um, uh, you know, could have been for pigment or something like that, but they have been culled a few times um, throughout their lifetime so far. And that's where when we, we've uh, we've got just this year to finish um, up at Pindley and we're kind of just waiting to get our final lot of data so that we can have a look at, really dig into the implications of, um, if we had culled according to our strategy in that first year, what use would we have lost from the flock, and and what sort of productivity are we possibly losing by by not accounting for things like single and twin? Yeah. Um. And, and would they have had, you know, what impact that has on on our flock later on? Yeah, no,
0: it's intriguing stuff. And obviously, we, well, industry wise, you tend to make those decisions within the first twelve months of animals' age at that, which is the period within the project where most error was made i guess if we can call it error and yeah. yeah and so as they get older i guess yeah you would expect that things might even up a bit but generally we're out yeah we're out there doing doing our damage um at, at an earlier age and i'm certainly very conscious of it when i'm on farm that sometimes you don't know who's a single twin and and you kind of just gotta and you're classing sheep and you've kind of gotta accept that you're uh, probably no different than the average that that will um class it out. And what we see um, is that it's not just size, it's sort of wool quality and, and some of the other nourishment and other things you might look at in a merino sheep that, um, that are actually, that are impacted on being a twin or a triplet or a boy, and being born from a two tooth ewe or a young ewe. Um, so all those things come into play and end up getting sheep binned when they probably shouldn't be. And yeah, it's going to be really intriguing to see how that plays out. And I guess for, from an industry perspective, it's really important that we, as much as possible, use information rather than rather than magic and eyes to, to make make those 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 decisions. And that's sort of, I guess, what we do in a business and what you've done as a career is try to help people make informed decisions. And,
1: and with that one, a lot of people are, um, you know, based on previous research work, are uh, separating their singles and twins for lambing and feeding them preferentially. So, so why you couldn't class them separately, you know, if they've lambed in separate paddocks to tag them according to single and twin and, and class them. If you're taking... Whatever percent out, take it out the same for your singles and twins. So, so there's opportunities yeah. there. That that's yeah, that's
0: certainly that, you certainly know, hopefully fine. Certainly a tip to take away. We've probably mentioned before on the podcast, but yeah, certainly, um, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's a notch or a dot or what it is to keep that single and twin mob separate until they can be running together. But know who they are uh, until yeah. that classing event, and then, and I think it's yeah, as you say, you separate them out and class them as a group, and you can take the same proportion out. But at least you'll um, nothing tougher, I don't think, than looking at big shiny early born single first, and then a tooth, uh, a twin out of a two-dooth tooth that's born late mm-hmm. and a drop next, and the chance of exactly chance of that second one making the grade is pretty remote. And and as we know, we all get yeah decisions. Our human brain is trained to sort of pick the average of the mob and and, and pick the best out of that once you know the average, and it's amazing. We just actually literally been doing that today take the tops and bottoms out of rams and when you get all the tops out of a rubber rams they all look good all of a sudden and the same with the um and so it's yeah and i guess we yeah we can set ourselves up for success by making sure we've got singles running with with singles and twins with twins obviously we don't know who was read a twin but a lot of the stuff we're talking about was as we showed in the lifetime wool days was that a lot of the damage is done in a merino's perspective anyway before they're even born as a twin a lot of that follicle stuff is, is set up and and some of the size stuff will be overcome exactly. by being red single if you lose one, but um, yeah, a lot of things are permanent, or at least last for a few years. Bron, we were just having a chat before we got on the podcast about you're now the, the incoming president for Triple ABG, and for those who don't know, Triple ABG is a, a, a group, I suppose, but it runs a, a sec, every second year runs a conference. The initial idea of Triple ABG, which um, what is it? Association for Advancement of Animal Breeding and Genetics. I think. Um, yep. The idea of that was to to bring farmers and, and genetic researchers, I guess, together to talk about talk about genetics. Um, you are really keen to, to maybe reinvigorate really that original intention, which was to get more farmers involved. And obviously, hopefully, our podcast listeners might be in that. If you're listening to Head Shepherd, that we talk a lot about genes. Hopefully, there's some people there that that might be keen. So, do you want to talk to us about that that conference?
1: Yeah. So. Now, ABG is an Australian and New Zealand organisation where we have conferences every two years. So after Perth in 2023, it heads over to New Zealand for the the conference in 2025. It is the, you know, for anyone who's doing research in um, animal breeding and genetics across Australia and and New Zealand, this is is the place to kind of present our work. But when it was first set up, the, the aim was to have a conference where we brought producers and scientists together And we're able to um, have discussions about um, the research that was being done, potential research, how research is being adapted and um, implemented on farm. And it would be really great. I'm really keen in 2023 that we have a really big um, producer input to the conference and, and that involves um, producers, uh, some, we'll, we'll have producer panels and we'll have um, producers talking about the things that, that are working and things that they'd like to see happen in terms, of, in terms of animal breeding and genetics. So I guess watch this space, you know, hopefully, like you say, some of your listeners will be people who will be part of our panels and, and part of discussing what they're doing on their, on their farms, what they're doing differently and the, the outcomes of those things. So, yeah,
0: good, sort of a watch this space. Yeah, we'll definitely mention it as it gets closer and, and the dates that, um, when, yeah, papers can be written, that sort of stuff. It's, yeah, we've been to maybe three or four AAA VG conferences and obviously we'll be, we'll be pretty safe. Hopefully by the time another couple of years rolls around that hopefully. we can travel around without, uh, or at least we'll, we'll either all had COVID or will <laughs> be, or, or something. Exactly. Will happen. Um, but.
1: It'll be nice to to invite people into Western
0: Australia. Too. Yeah, the Republic of Western Australia. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure if yeah. that's ever going to happen. I, I have really enjoyed the MLA ad with uh, with with WA ad on its own. But um, yeah, yeah, That's a special, definitely a special place. But um, yeah, no, awesome, Brian. Thanks very much for, for coming along, and um, yeah, look forward to finally catching up again when when borders allow. But uh, thought it was great to have that opportunity to have a chat and talk about that. I mean, the range of things you've been involved with back in the, I guess. When I before I moved to New Zealand, as some people will know, we um, you and I did some work for New Zealand Rana Company, and that's what landed me in this country in the first place. Was our uh, combined consultancy that, that you and I did. So, so yeah, we've had a bit of a done a bit of work together, and um, yeah, it's meant that I'm now yeah, pretty well stationed in the South Island thanks to that work. So, but that was a good time back then.
1: Certainly was it was really really good bit of work. I really enjoyed that. That was. Um yeah, and and to have you working over there now as, as a follow on from
0: that has has been fantastic. Yeah, no, it's very cool. There's all that stuff we designed is now we're sitting there looking at foot rot breeding bays that didn't exist seven, or eight years ago, like the carcass ones it's, didn't it's didn't exist twenty years ago. So, um, yeah, yeah, um, and and working beautifully. We're having real, we've we've set ourselves up for real success in terms of breeding final wool sheep without foot rot, which I talk about a lot because it's so exciting. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, thanks very much, Brian we'll, we'll catch up soon.
1: Thanks, Vic. Cheers.
0: Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Bed Shepherd podcast. If you enjoy listening in each week, please take a moment to subscribe or even give us a review. That'd be fantastic. And if you do get a moment to share it with your networks, we'd also love that so that we can share these great stories with more people. Thanks again to our friends at Allflex for sponsoring this episode. Allflex are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries. Combined now with MSD Animal Health, they offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios focused on animal health and management all backed up by that exceptional service. We really do enjoy our long-term association with Orflex and thank them very much for for again supporting us with bringing this podcast to you.